Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Ignite is a genius concept, Seattle style. It brings locals together to share ideas, inspirations, and understanding in a rapid-fire, accessible format. The program was invented here, and you're invited. Anyone can submit a talk. The organizers help you hone your presentation before the event. Ignite Seattle 31 took place on November 17th at Town Hall Seattle. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Ignite MC Scott Birkin kicks off the talks. How many of you failed calculus in college? A lot of you. Okay. Well, you're in for a treat. Our opening talk, Jordan Couch is going to talk about happiness through calculus. Please welcome Jordan to the stage. It's often said that a single good deed can change the world. Well, I'm here tonight to tell you all that that's just bullshit. But don't worry, as advertised, this is going to be a happy speech. You see, the truth is our world is vast, and it's infinitely complex. And as important as individual good deeds are, they're like raindrops in an ocean, and they can never have a lasting impact. But all hope is not lost. Leo Tolstoy said, that for a man to live in this world, he must either not see the infinite or have such an explanation of the meaning of life as to connect the finite with the infinite. In other words, it is possible to have a lasting impact on an infinite world. But first, we must understand the infinite. And what better teacher than Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the inventor of calculus? <laughs> you see, in 1675, Leibniz set out to un understand the infinite. And in doing so, he did something that no mathematician in all of human history had ever done. He discovered an equation for the area of a circle. And even though this problem had baffled mathematicians for thousands and thousands of years, Leibniz solved it in a proof that was less than one page long. And that's including his multiple, multiple doodles. <laughs> this was the magic of calculus. Impossible problems became easy to solve. And all because Leibniz found a new way of understanding the infinite. So let's do the same thing right here tonight. Take, for example, this equation. One-half plus one-fourth plus one-eighth continuing. If we imagine this equation like movement along a line, we can see that with each step we get halfway from where we are to one. And we can all know that the further along the series we go, the closer we will get to one, but we can also see that it will never actually equal one. Add one-sixteenth, one-thirty-second, one-sixty-fourth, one-one-hundred-and-twenty-eighth, on and on and on to infinity, and we keep getting closer but it never actually equals one, never. So, if by definition an infinite series never ends, how do we solve an equation like this one? Well, in 1675, Leibniz took a look at this exact same equation, and he just said, so what if we can't see the end? Doesn't matter. He recognized <laughs> that in an infinite series, no one segment is different or more important than another. So everything we need to know is right there in that equation. We know where we are, and we know where it's going. So even if we can't see the end, we can say that at its infinite end, it equals one. And now a lot of people scoffed at Leibniz and his blatant disregard for all mathematical principles that had been accepted at the time. But in the end, iPhones, space travel, most of our modern life has proven that Leibniz was right all along. So tonight I want to challenge all of you to look at our world in the same way we look at that infinite series. 
You see, our tendency when things happen, whether good or bad, is to seek answers by searching for the powerful leaders who we believe caused it. But in an infinite world, our leaders, like points on that infinite series, aren't special. Take, for example, Napoleon, widely recognized as one of history's greatest leaders. In 1799, Napoleon loudly proclaimed his intent to conquer Britain, and he launched France into a 16-year-long war. Now, in the years following Napoleon's proclamation, the French army marched further and further east, away from Britain, and toward Napoleon's eventual defeat. And even as his army marched further and further east, Napoleon continued to proclaim his intent to conquer Britain. So I ask, is this history's greatest leader? Or was Tolstoy right when he said that Napoleon and his generals, above all the blind leaders of history, were the most enslaved and the most involuntary of all men? But Napoleon wasn't alone. Every year, our Supreme Court turns public opinion into binding precedent. Every one of us has seen a time that a law was broken, but not enforced, especially those of you like me who commute on a regular basis. <laughs> In a world like ours, where trillions of independent actions take place every moment, leaders simply don't exist. And one good deed has no chance of ever changing the world. So with that in mind, I have a challenge for all of you. The next time tragedy strikes, don't ask who is responsible for this. Don't ask, what can I do to fix it? Don't waste your life chasing down individual points on an infinite series, and instead take a cue from Leibniz. Look at what's in front of you. When tragedy strikes, I want all of us to ask ourselves, who am I such that I made this happen? And who do I need to become if I'm going to make this world a better, happier place? Good job. Very good. It's good stuff. <clears throat> Next up, Noah Olinsky is going to talk about guaranteed successful design. Please welcome Noah to the stage. All right. Guaranteed successful design. Uh, simple but not easy. All you have to do is make sure you're designing the right thing and design it well. Um, we're going to talk about both of those, not in that order. We're going to start with designing it well. Um, you have to separate your function from your implementation. Humans are really bad at this because we're really excited about talking how we're going to implement it. But if you can describe it or if you can point to it, you're talking about implementation and you've narrowed the focus of what is possible because you're thinking about how to do it, not what it can do for you. Start with that first. Abstract your requirements. Nobody wants about this much hot water and about that much cold water. What we want is the right temperature so that we're comfortable in the shower or in the bath, but we're stuck with this physical implementation of these knobs. Really, though, we want the right temperature and some volume. Once you've got that, you can solve the abstraction. You can do it totally uh, in the abstract, in the math. So we've got hot and cold here, making a little point in temperature space. Or you can look at other disciplines that have solved similar related problems and bring them back into your discipline. And then there's a whole lot of ways to implement that function. Track your assumptions. Your assumptions should be really good friends. You should get to know them really well. You should, you know, treat them like trading cards. Um, and then disrupt them. See what you can do if you add new assumptions. See if you can remove assumptions. Uh, really try to uh, undermine your thinking there. Introduce constructive constraints. Uh, my favorite crusade these days is get rid of drop-downs. They're a terrible, terrible piece of UI, and you almost always should never use them. Just don't. Um, we like constraints. People in a garage... A lot of constraints makes you be more creative. It's a really good way to uh, think differently. Um, think outside the box. You can't. 
That's why it's your box. If you get with other people, they have boxes too. If the people who look like you, their boxes are going to look like your box and you don't get a much bigger box. The more different the people you work with are, the more different the collective bigger box is going to be. Um, data is great. Refining into information is better. You can get some answers out of that. That's even better. Uh, enabling actions is great. Doing it just completely solving it for people is even better. Work up in the upper end. Uh, taking data and information is good, but you haven't really solved the problem. When you get to glad, then you're good. Architect for use. Menus are not organized alphabetically. They're usually not organized by price. They're not organized by calorie or ingredients. They're organized in the way that the human is going to consume the food typically. It actually turns out it's sort of time ordered. Um, don't just spew your database onto the screen. Draw a map. Otherwise, you're just building a house without a blueprint, and that's a bad idea. There's going to be edge cases. Things are going to go wrong. Do you, remember, um, do you remember Google's April Fool's trick or Microsoft's chatbot? Horrific failures because they didn't think about edge cases and real damage was done. Think about the edge cases. Design systems for human inaction. If your system depends on a human doing the right thing, your system's going to fail. <laughs> Seriously, it's going to fail eventually. This is why we love direct deposit because it does the right thing when you don't do anything. If you wait for the human to do something, it's going to screw up once in a while. All right, switching tracks, defining the right problem. Um, keep a bug list and keep a, res a resignation list. Like, man, traffic in Seattle is really, really annoying and housing is really expensive. Oh, well. Or maybe those are things that we can fix. That's how you find solutions, uh, the right problems to work on. Um, root cause analysis, actually ask why and dive into that. When you hear the passive voice, People just keep dying in car accidents. We call them accidents. They're not accidents. Not in 30,000 a year. Uh, that's not an accident. That's a plan. Um, when you hire a passive voice, ask who's doing it. Um, make a visual map of the market. I saw this, uh, not this one, but one very much like this many, many years ago. And there was a big gap that was filled with things like Twitter and Facebook that didn't previously exist, but in 2008 were coming into being. You can do a really interesting analysis of what exists by making some interesting axes. This is a technique called Wardley mapping uh, by a guy named Simon Wardley. This is... Um, the future is inevitable. We know how different resources are going to go from being, uh, you know, the, the, these very custom boutique things to becoming essentially utilities. You can map out entire industries that way. Pursue bigger boxes. We're in a tiny little box, a tiny little box. There's a whole planet's worth of problems out there, and we're not looking, most of us, not very far outside our tiny little box to find the right problems to solve. Tim O'Reilly for years has been talking about working on stuff that matters. What that means is work on things that matter more than money. Not, not that there's no money involved, but that there's more purpose there. Create more value than you capture so you're net positive in the world and take the long view. The next quarter or the next release, not long enough. Uh, here's the best work on stuff that matters recruiting line in the history of technology. This is how Steve Jobs hired John Scully. Scully later fired Jobs. That's beside the point. Um, Brett Victor is an amazing designer. Somebody asked him, what should designers be doing after he ranted that we were doing the wrong things, we weren't focused on the right things? And he wrote this beautiful essay on what technologists can do to combat the single biggest problem we face, which is climate change. It's a wonderful set of resources and about a thousand good ideas. Go check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Just a quick bit of... So this is our 10th anniversary. So when I get a moment, I'm going to, moments like this, I'm going to interject a little bit of Ignite, Ignite Seattle trivia. How many of you were here when that gentleman got married on the stage? Okay, okay. We love to push the boundaries of this format, and we love to find new ways to use this format. We only get five minutes. What can you do in five minutes? So if you're thinking about talks, we are open-minded about what can be done on stage, preferably PG-13. Okay. Next up.
So Noah's an alumni, obviously. Our next speaker is also an alumni speaker. Kristen Leong is going to talk to you about Definitely Not Nordstrom. Please welcome Kristen to the stage. Ignite! I am psyched to be back here, you guys. I don't know what you guys have been doing, but I've had like a rough last couple of weeks, right? <laughs> and it's our birthday. You guys, Ignite is 10 years old. This is a big deal. That's like ancient in startup years, right? I'm a middle school teacher, so we're going to start with the agenda. We're going to cover four things today. We're going to start with a story, and then you're going to get to make a judgment call. I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite people. We're going to end with something we all can do together. Let's talk about the grocery store. Guys, I hate going to the grocery store. The lighting is really bad. There's too many options for everything. The music. You'll be like choosing between 87 varieties of peanut butter, and you have to stop and say hello right back to Lionel Richie. What? There's like pressure to look your best. But actually, my story today is about a time that I rejected this pressure. I go to yoga after work because I'm a middle school teacher, and you have to go to yoga after work. Um, I was unprepared, though. So I found myself, I had to go grocery shopping, and I was wearing like sweatpants and like this disgusting, sweaty yoga shirt and like my fanciest teacher shoes, which like whatever. I was going for like, like teacher athleisure. It's fine. So I was getting ready to go into the grocery store in this outfit. And I, um, I remembered that stores here are at like Arctic levels. So I went back to my car and I grabbed the only long sleeve shirt that I had, which was my seven-year-old son's thermal. And while I was there, I remembered thankfully, that I love the earth. I grabbed the only bag that I had. It was a Nordstrom shopping bag that I have been reusing since like 2005. And this is how I shopped at like peak after work hours in Bellevue. And it's fine. Because, like, whatever, right? Who cares? Um, uh, until it's not fine. And then I was, um, I was putting some frozen chicken into my Nordstrom bag. And I had this moment of, like, realizing that people could see me. <laughs> you know? Like, do you ever have that where life just kind of dawns on you? So then I was having this existential crisis in the grocery store. And I was wondering out loud, like, who am I? How have my life choices taken me here? But I realized this was going to be an awesome story to tell my family and my students and apparently 900 of all of you. And a funny thing happened in the retelling of this story. I realized that, guys, I wasn't having a crisis. This is actually like my best self. Each part of that outfit represents a part of my life that I love. When I told my students this story, a seventh grader told me I was a hero, and I get it because we tell kids all the time to be themselves, to express themselves. But as we all know, the world is a really scary place to be yourself, especially if you're a middle school kid. Maybe some of you can relate to that fear now, especially if you're a person of color. 
or if you're queer, or if you're Muslim, or if you're an immigrant, or if you're a woman, or if you're like a sort of aware, straight, white guy who works in tech, whatever. <laughs> for some of us, this fear is fresh, and for some of us, this fear is familiar, but for all of us now, it is a brave act of rebellion and self-preservation just to be yourself out in public. So the point of this story is, wear whatever you want to the grocery store and love yourself and love each other, right? And tell your story to whoever will listen in whatever language you can tell it best, even if you're still crying, even if you're still angry, because the only way we're gonna make it through the next four years is if we are out in force, being exactly who we are. Thank you, I'm Kristen Leong. Find me on Twitter. We're still stronger together, thank you. That was worthy of a lot of applause. That was good. Good amount of applause there. Thank you very much. So next up is another alumni. How many remember the talk you saw a year or so ago about surviving the mega earthquake survival skills by Eric? We're very pleased when he submitted another talk. Now, Kristen mentioned language. She offered how language is important towards the end of her talk about the language we use. So this next talk is about language used in ordinary daily life. We forget how we can overlook the use of words. If we're more precise with words, we might be able to get more out of our lives. And so Eric's going to talk about not everything is a collaboration. Please welcome Eric to the stage. Hello, Seattle. Okay, I, Napoleon Eric Holdeman, first want to declare that I intend to invade the island nation of Vashon. <laughs> But before that, we do that, we need to go to Spokane. But we're talking about collaboration. There are buzzwords in our life and society. If you're old enough, I mean, everything was a new paradigm. Uh, you didn't say separate, you'd say bifurcate. Uh, we need our kids to have grit. But the buzzword now is collaborate. And when I first heard this word in the form we talk about today, I didn't like it. A collaborator was a Quisling, which is uh, the name of the guy who collaborated with the Nazis in uh, Norway. What are you laughing about? Now, collaboration has a lot of different meanings. To the man, he's saying, hey, baby, want to come back to my place and copulate. But, okay, think about how collaboration is used. Some people say they're collaborating when they inform. Inform only means I'm telling you something. I don't expect you to do anything. We're not going to do anything together. Coordination actually is a two-way form of communication. I'm going to tell you something. I'd like to know what you're doing, but we aren't necessarily going to copulate later. You know, it's, it's just plain coordination. Partnering, now you're getting to the point where we're going to start working together. You have a common interest, you know, corporate-wise, you have partnerships, really starting to work on common issues of common concern. Now think about uh, negotiate. Some people may think that collaboration means we're going to negotiate, have give and take. 
from that perspective. So be sure and clarify when someone says they want to collaborate with you, what does that mean? Does it mean negotiation? Now, this is my only Donald Trump reference, but Donald Trump, when he thinks about negotiation, he may be thinking about tit for tat. Now, think about that. Is uh, where you give and I take. But collaborate really is the highest form of interaction with, between people and organizations. No perceived uh, agendas and really getting in their blank sheet of paper. Start with that. That's collaboration. Now, this is a true. I was in the Army in the early 70s. We'd say, I want you to go over there and get in bed with them on this. Uh, back then, it wasn't don't ask, don't tell. It was just plain don't. And, <laughs> and so it really meant close coordination. And remember when someone says, I want to collaborate with you, they may be looking to share the blame with someone from that standpoint, or uh, they're afraid of taking too much risk. A key component of collaboration is trust. Without trust, there will be no collaboration. Uh, be sure you start to build trust. And how do you do that? It really starts with that first thing we covered uh, in the beginning is sharing information. If you're working with someone who doesn't trust you, you can keep sharing information. You're not expecting them to do anything, but after a while, because you're giving them information, they'll say, well, okay, this is all right. doesn't demand anything from me. You can move from that to coordination. I'm doing this. How would you like to join me? It's invitational uh, to be able to achieve that. And then, you know, the clock keeps ticking. They're partnering. So look for opportunities partner with others. Uh, I actually worked with Pierce County when I was in King County. They didn't trust King County. Even I didn't trust King County. But I gave them a bunch of money, and they said, we'll do it. Okay, I'm going to talk about one other thing, and that is my bad. Your parents did not send you to a university education so you could go around saying, my bad. That's true. Yeah. All right, Canadians. I know there's a Canadian in here. Now, and you don't have to be ashamed. Half these people want to go to Canada already. But they don't say my bad. They say sorry. When Canada, Canada and Canadians start saying my bad, you know it's the end of Western civilization. Okay, verify your intentions before speaking. Are you looking to inform, coordinate, partner, negotiate, collaborate, copulate? Or just say my bad, I guess. But don't say it. Now, this is audience participation at this point. Got to throw it in, in here. We don't do it automatically. We don't get rid of my bad. So on behalf of the 325 million people in the United States to the 7 billion people of the world, we would like at this point to apologize by saying all in unison. My bad. All right, thank you. So now that we know the true meaning of the word collaborate, it's an excellent segue into Sarah Shack's talk. She's going to talk to you about Appy Bride, how I infuriated the wedding industry and got my dream wedding. Please welcome Sarah to the stage. I heard a lot during wedding planning you seem really calm about this. And it was true. I was calm about wedding planning. I had taken back my wedding from the wedding industry and decided to do it 
our own way with my fiance and I. And uh, it was different than most American weddings. American weddings, we focus on picture perfect, the perfect dress. Oh, look at that venue, those flowers. They're like the prettiest shade of rose, right? And we focus on so much the perfect Pinteresty wedding. We don't see how much it's going to cost us. The average American wedding is over $30,000, and you as a guest cost the couple over $200. Women now uh, getting ready for their wedding don't just buy a several thousand dollar dress. They also go out for plastic surgery and other things to make them look like the perfect bride they feel like they should be. And I rejected this notion of an expensive wedding and being perfect at the expense of also who we were authentically. And I ended up writing a blog post about this on Medium. I thought like a couple hundred people would read it. It went viral and I ended up in the Daily Mail of the UK called, Is This America's Thriftiest Bride? Yes. Um, and I, I, we had a budget that was less than a third of the average American wedding. And um, so when I wrote this blog post and went viral, the wedding industry responded. They said a lot of things, like they would crash my wedding and show how horrible it was. But they also, I thought was an interesting point, where they talked about how they charge more for an event that's a wedding because you expect perfection, and they have to deliver that on that one special day. And I think that this is a real ratcheting up of expectation in this vicious cycle where we seek the glamour and perfection of this one day of our wedding and we're willing to pay anything to make it happen. And the industry knows that. In The Power of Glamour, they talk about how glamour and ideas of glamour shape our perceptions and our wants and needs. But I decided I was going to ditch glamour in the pursuit of joy, was going to honor our values as a couple and our bank account, and that this was going to be as simple a wedding as I could make it to also meet kind of our cultural norms as a family merging together from two countries. So in ditching glamour, I, does anybody know this book? Like you pile stuff in the living room and then you're like, doesn't bring me joy, toss. Like that's what I did with the wedding industry. So uh, if, if it was a tradition that didn't fit, uh, I walked down the aisle by myself to a cellist playing EXO by Beyonce. It was fantastic. Um, I, you know, anybody who judges, uh, so many things that just didn't feel authentically us. And then I honored our values. I work in the nonprofit industry. I love Seattle with a deep passion. We had two wedding venues for about the fifth of the price of another wedding venue and supported two amazing historic nonprofits on Seattle's waterfront. We went and got, uh, we decoupled catering from the venues. So getting veggie grilled to cater, which was amazing, and then some excellent salmon from Whole Foods. Things from the sharing economy uh, and uh, buy nothing groups like this signage. So this is what things cost us. That designer purse was free from Rent the Runway. It was fantastic. Um, and uh, I went to actually a, uh, a, a drag convention, RuPaul's Drag Convention. It's the best place to get wedding accessories. And I got... Ashley Mel Tipton's, like, amazing Project Runway flower thing for my hair. It was amazing. Anyway, and then to keep things simple, what I did is this. We had a playbook. Anybody who was working the wedding could tear out a page and execute. They didn't need to know something special for themselves. Uh, we lined up deliveries using services like Livable. We got wine kegs. Wine kegs, people. $2 a glass, self-serve. Amazing. Um, and if friends volunteered, great. I put them on something fun and small, um, but I hired staff from the gig economy to do so. 
All the plans were super visual and laid out, so images help you plan and adjust. And then we kept things really simple with things like a, do, a DIY photo booth with Polaroids. It was an amazing album of photos that friends and family left for us. So in ditching glamour to gain joy, uh, in honoring our values and keeping things simple, we had an amazing wedding that uh, many people here in the audience took part in and made happen. And it felt authentic in us and our community. And we only went slightly over budget. Um, and, uh, and I just, I love the day, but I also love the process of planning. And I didn't feel stressed, and it was really good. So I'm taking the blog post and the experience of event planning and writing a book called Abbey Bride, The Modern Wedding Guide, which will be available on Kindle in February 27. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Schott and eventually on the egg page of Abbey Bride. Thanks. How's it going over here? Good, good, good. Can you guys do better than that? I think they win. You'll make it a better chance, another chance in the second half, okay? So plan for that, have more drinks. Well, the home stretch, a few more talks, get the break, another drink, go to the bathroom. So hold on, we're almost there, break time. Next up, Maddie Williamson is going to talk. Her talk title is Hello, My Friend. Please welcome her to the stage. Hello, my friend. We've agreed each other the only way we really knew how, with gestures of love and affection, with deep respect, and with a mutual appreciation for the situation that we found ourselves in. Thousands of miles away from our homes, on the border of Greece and Macedonia, a city that most places never even heard of, we had no idea of what tomorrow would hold. This greeting, it was introduced by some volunteers in Idomini as a way of bridging that gap of us and them, and as a way of creating cohesion and familiarity in this environment that we found ourselves in. The Greek police, my friend. The doctors and the volunteers, my friend. The Idomini ice cream man, most definitely my friend. <laughs> Hello, my friend. Hello, my brother. Hello, my equals. Hello to people that I cherish and to someone that I love. Ironically, it's the ancient Greeks who developed a word for this kind of love, and they called it philia, brotherly love. Philia is the love that I feel for my friend Hassan. Hassan was a student in Syria before he had to flee the war. Hassan has the strongest moral compass of anyone I have ever met in my entire life. Hassan is someone who started as a colleague and turned into a brother. He's someone that I love and someone that I trust. My friend Amin, our bond, philia, sisters. Joined in talks, we walked through the abandoned tents of a refugee camp when really 21-year-old girls should probably be going out for drinks in a coffee shop. Amin and I found that we share almost identical hopes and dreams for our future. We long for safety and security. We long for happiness. And we hope that one day, when this mess is over, we'll be able to go and help people the same way that we saw people come to help us. Philia is in the loving pat on the hand from my echo grandpa, can you imagine the things that he has seen in his 75 years of life and that this, this is the legacy that we leave behind for the children who are playing at his feet? Philia is in the embrace that I share with a mother when she tells us about the day that her five-year-old son was shot in the head with a sniper. It's in the tears that fall to the floor 
And it's in that moment where we choose to trust each other, when we choose to be vulnerable for the sake of another person, when we choose to take on those feelings, those emotions, when we know that they are raw and when we know that they are painful. Philia was expressed to me again and again by these families who fled with nothing but their lives. They fled with their clothes on their backs. They had to leave family members behind, everything. And they were the ones who were teaching me about hospitality, about sharing, about giving. These people in the refugee camps of northern Greece, they have witnessed things that we can't even imagine. They have told me their stories, and they have trusted me to be their storyteller. They have trusted me to be their voice when their voice was taken away. And to me, there's no greater sign of someone who truly loves you, who will make sacrifices for you, and who appreciates you than someone who is willing to instill that deep a level of trust. These stories, the stories of the refugees, the stories of the volunteers, the stories of doctors and nurses, people who have put their lives on hold and traveled hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, to make sacrifices for these people, these are not stories that can be labeled by our profession or by our ethnicity or the language that we speak or our religion. These are stories of human beings. They're stories of people like you and me. Philia is the truest love. It's raw and it's authentic. And it's felt when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Philia is felt when those barriers that we surround ourselves with every minute of every day, this little comfort bubble that we're in, ethnicity, religion, nationality, culture, language, when those barriers fall, that is when philia is felt. Philia is felt when we decide to love each other through difficult times rather than letting the fear of the unknown drive us apart. It's felt when we choose to unite and face the injustices together, when we know that the safer, easier, and certainly the more comfortable option is to just turn a blind eye. These people have trusted me, so in return I've promised to tell each and every one of their stories with the passion and the enthusiasm that they deserve. And these people, they're still here. The communities, these places where we developed these relationships, they're gone now. These camps were temporary. They've dissipated. These people have been uprooted and moved, moved again to the outskirts of society, to places that you wouldn't even consider storing animals. Our hope and our dream is that one day, I will not be the one telling their stories. I don't want to be their voice forever. Our hope and dream is that one day, they will be the ones up here on the stage with me and they will be greeting you. Hello, my community. Hello, my equals. Hello, my friends. Thank you. That was excellent. This stage can be used for so many things, and one of the delights of being one of the organizers is to have so many different kinds of stories told, uh, stories that many of us, things we think about or things we feel that we don't know are available to us, and then we hear a story, and it changes how we think of ourselves and our friends and our families and our own stories. Part of our own stories, of course, is uh, how our stories as people living on this planet end. In our next talk, Robin Tarter is going to talk. Her title is called Eat Your Ice Cream, how to Live Like You're Dying. Please welcome her to the stage. So I bet a lot of you are wondering, what the heck does hospice have to do with ice cream? I'm going to start by defining hospice, but I promise we'll get to dessert by the end of this. 
Hospice is a program for maximizing the quality of life for people living with life-limiting illness. I have something very personal to share. I have a life-limiting illness. Actually, all of us do. It's called being alive. <laughs> as I've worked as a hospice nurse, I've come to understand that we all need the lessons that hospice has to teach because we're all dying. The first lesson is that independence is a myth. As much as our technology and our current lack of incapacitating disease might make us feel otherwise, we are the most fragile and needy organisms on the planet. We evolved as social animals completely dependent on our groups for survival. So until we accept that needing help is not a failure, we will never get our needs met. These needs change constantly as we change. We are not who we were even 10 minutes ago. So if we base our identities on static labels, mother, wife, breadwinner, Democrat, we risk being torn apart. We are amazingly plastic and unique beings. And this is the concept that is at the center of hospice where we're constantly adapting our care to what our patients say they need that day. I think we all like thinking we're unique, but we don't like thinking that we're made of the same stuff. We are all subject to the same laws of physics, prone to the same patterns of dysfunction and decay. Thankfully, most of the time, we don't need any fancy tools to tell us when dysfunction's happening. The meat machines we call bodies have built-in signals. Pain, nausea, little alterations in the way we smell, the way we sound. These are all signals that something's wrong. They're more finely tuned than any MRI or CAT scan, but they don't tell us what to do about our problems. For that, we have to try things and be skeptical of anything that promises an idealized picture of health or normality. As we experiment, it's important to celebrate our successes. For my patients, a day without pain or a night of actually getting some sleep is a victory. The same is true for us. When our experiments don't work out, we have to be willing to throw them away, no matter how much we've invested. And that's really hard in a society that calls every challenge a battle or a war that has to be fought to the bitter end. What this all boils down to is that suffering now will not necessarily buy you happiness later. The belief that the universe owes you some imagined long-term gain in exchange for you ignoring what you feel right now is a pernicious lie. What if instead we focused on immediate actions, simple, creative, evidence-based actions with long-term benefits that we get to choose. That's what we do in hospice. As unique as each of them are, my patients tend to choose benefits of two distinct flavors. Connection and joy. My patients cultivate connection by sharing their stories, 
by letting us as the hospice team touch them, by being vulnerable, by acting like the social animals they evolved to be, finally, at the end of their lives. The other benefit they want is joy. And that's what brings us to ice cream. The very best part of my job is that almost every day I get to tell someone older and wiser than I am that they should be eating more ice cream. And tonight I'm so excited to tell all of you to eat ice cream because you're all going to die. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Is there anyone here who works for Molly Moons? Like, this could be like their new, hey, you're going to die. You know. One other note, though. So uh, these bright red pants, I only get to wear them every few months. I'm very proud of them. It's the one chance. I'm on a red carpet. She was on point with the color. Can you stand up for a second? Anyone who's wearing red? Red, stand up. You're wearing red, stand up, sir. Stand up. Red, 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 red. You guys all got the memo. You're the cool kids. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, thank you. Okay, our last talk before the break. Last talk before the break. We're going to change speed up a little. There's going to be a little the vibes. going to be a little bit different. Shannon Mead is going to talk about building solid teams with silly games. Please welcome Shannon to the stage. Hello. My name is Shannon, and I'm going to need your cooperation. In about a minute and a half, I am going to blow this whistle and put my hand in the air. And when I do so, you need to sit down and be quiet as fast as possible, please. The reason for that is, if I'm going to teach you about using games, we're going to play a game in 60 seconds. Here's how it's going to work. Everybody to the right of this hole, I don't know what that is, your team hokey. Everybody to the left of the hole, your team pokey. Within your team... You're going to have 60 seconds to begin clapping a rhythm. Two teams, 60 seconds, clap any rhythm better than the other side of the room. <laughs> Do you understand? Because it's almost time. Go. It's the same rhythm. cut our time early because you know what? That was an amazing show of unity. <laughs> I was looking to create competition and you guys went all Seattle <laughs> and clapped the same rhythm. And look at our time's not even up. I'm pretty impressed and actually I like it and hope we can be um, a demonstration to our country. So, you should stop now. My whistle should just be going off. So let's just talk about what you've done to me, because I was timed 15 seconds at a time. I had the whistle, and now I'm off. But you know what? I can recover, because this is Ignite, and we can pull it together. <laughs> let's debrief. I want you to take a minute to notice your bodies. What do you guys feel? Are your heart rates a little bit elevated? Are you breathing differently? Did you move in your seat a little bit? 
That's because your central nervous system said, pay attention, something is happening. Just like mine did when you guys started clapping fast all together. So when our minds and our bodies are working together to, pay, to say pay attention, what that means is we're ready for attunement. Attunement is the word that means you are in sync with the people around you. So you guys just attuned with 900 of your best friends, right? Attunement is very important to building trust. And as we all know, trust is key to having strong teams. So my talk is about building teams. Um, there's other things that happen when we play games. I'm talking about like silly board games, like Pictionary. So we make eye contact. How many of us spend our days staring at screens? Can we imagine the, what would happen if we made some more eye contact? If we spent more time laughing? This idea of being reliant on people outside of a stressful situation. So yes, we may rely on our teams when we have a deadline or something stressful, but when you're trying to figure out like the Pictionary scribble, that's an entirely different piece of activation for your body. These are the kind of things that build that always elusive culture of fun. And we all know this is Seattle. We're all about innovation and creativity. And you can't have that without fun. So our teams need to laugh together, work together. The other thing is, games are a great way to get an idea of who on your team is leaders, who has great strategic ability. Trust me, you play a little Catan with somebody, you're going to figure out. <laughs> you're going to figure out what's going on, right? Um, this is actually also a very useful hiring tool. So you can go sit in a conference room and ask some stuffy questions, or if you're at Google or Microsoft, you can draw some whiteboard pictures. But if you sit around a table and play games with somebody, maybe crack a beer open, you're going to learn a lot more about that individual. So let's review, right? Games activate our central nervous system. And then they begin to create that process called attunement. And this is not just my idea. We have some, we have some tools and some science behind this. If you're interested in stuff like that, let me know. I'm happy to share. This attunement is the key to creating trust, and especially if you're a manager or a leader, it gives you good insight into your team. Furthermore, games are really cheap and accessible. Amazon Prime, you'll have them tomorrow, <laughs> right? Way easier than doing trust falls in the forest with your team for the day, okay? <laughs> and they're flexible. Figure out what you need to know. Do you need to find the negotiators on your team? Play a little Catan. You'll find out. So, my name is Shannon. I have done this before with Teams. It truly works. If you have any questions, here's my email address. I would love to hear from you. That was awesome. Okay, a few things before the break. So first, how is the first half going so far? Good? Having fun? Excellent, excellent. I have some advice for you. You all seem to be having a good time. You're going to have the chance to meet some people you don't know when you're downstairs waiting in line for a drink. So a bit of advice to you. Anyone you meet you don't know, maybe they're wearing a red shirt, maybe they're not, you can ask them, hey, what's your favorite talk so far? You're guaranteed a reasonable, interesting answer. That's how community builds. Simple questions. You never know. What talk do you like the most? What talk do you like the most? So try it out. In terms of the logistics, as part of my job, make sure you know what to do. We're going to break. It's almost 9 now. At 9.20, we're going to start up again. Should be enough time to get a drink, especially if you pre-ordered a drink. Who are the pre-ordered drinks? Excellent. Next time, you're like, pre-order a drink? Pre-order a drink? Now you know for next time. Nine, we're going to start at 9.20. If you are a speaker in the second half, I need you up here at 9.15. Don't forget. Go have fun. I'll see you after the break. Break. Welcome back from the break. Hello. You're having a great time. Makes us feel good. 
But please take your seats. Take your seats. We have more surprises in store for you for the second half. The sooner you take your seat, you'll get a surprise. Hopefully not in your seat or under your seat. Very good. So over 10 years, we have had 496 talks. That's a lot. That's a lot. We're very proud of that fact. It ends up being something like 9,000 PowerPoint slides, which is a bit terrifying. We've had many interesting people and fascinating people get up here on stage. One thing we wanted to do is honor some of those people. So I have in my hand the mega alumni raffle box. We have books from Jessica Hagee. We have Exploding Kittens from The Oatmeal. We have Hillel Cooperman, one of our favorite speakers, one of his books he wrote for young adults. We have Dan Shapiro's Amazing Game for Children to Learn Programming, Robot Turtles. So I'm going to hold on to this until I find an audience member worthy of receiving it. That's good. That's a good warm-up. But we have the whole second half to sort this out. So I'm going to put it on the side of the stage for now. Whoa. I don't... I <laughs> wow. I was going to say you lose for yelling stuff out, but I am very flattered. So we will allow this just this once. So we're going to get going, but keep that in the back of your mind. First up is an alumni who gave a very amazing, vulnerable talk a couple years ago. His talk is a sequel to that. So please welcome Jeff Hicks' stage. His talk is called After the Psych Ward. Welcome him to the stage. Thank you. In 2013, about three and a half years ago, I gave an Ignite talk for the first time. It was a very personal talk entitled Welcome to the Psych Ward about my experience with mental illness, discovering I had bipolar disorder, and experiencing madness for the first time. Bipolar disorder is my mental health condition. It's a mood disorder, a chronic mood disorder, that can cause extreme and unexplained mood swings ranging from mania to depression. It intricately links your thoughts, feelings, and actions. It can twist your emotions in the way that you see and interact with the world. And Ignite gave me the opportunity to tell people about it. That night was a very important one for me. It was the first time I'd ever talked about my condition publicly. It led me to discover a passion for doing so, a desire to speak to others about what I'd been through to show that living in recovery is very possible. I now regularly speak at high schools and colleges and even to local and federal law enforcement about mental illness. <laughs> I volunteer for NAMI. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is the nation's largest grassroots organization designed to help support and educate those with mental illness and their friends and family. Because this condition, or any mental illness for that matter, can happen to anyone. And it can come out of nowhere, changing your life forever. In fact, one in five Americans lives with some type of mental illness. It's likely you know someone who does. I've been hospitalized for mania three times. My total time in the hospital, two months. While these hospitalizations were all necessary, each was involuntary. I never thought I needed help when I truly did. And all I wanted was to go home. But what happens after you go home? What happens after the psych ward? How do you begin to recover from a lifelong mental illness? Well, recovery for me was a slow crawl, a journey that found me on a dozen different medications over the years with a wide range of side effects, working with multiple doctors until I found the right one for me. Where I once thought of medication as the enemy, as an admission of weakness or a source of shame, now I don't. 
Diabetics take insulin, and there's no shame in that. I take mood stabilizers, and there's no shame in that either. Recovery is different for everyone, but being open about my condition has helped me a great deal. I'm open with my friends, my family, and even my employer, and they're all very supportive. I find it helps to fight the stigma and lack of understanding that comes along with invisible illnesses. And I feel that it's something we need to talk about. That should be brought into the light. Because all too often, mental illness is not talked about. It's hidden or even taboo to discuss it. When I was first diagnosed, I knew nothing about my condition. I knew stereotypes about what being crazy is. I was angry and I was scared. I didn't want to accept my diagnosis. I was scared of what had happened and, of course, what people would think about me. And I was embarrassed by things I had said and done. Talking about my condition has helped me come to terms with it, yet I will always live with a little bit of fear in my life. I'm always going to wonder if it'll happen again and if this time I'll lose everything. I'll always be just a little bit afraid of myself, constantly checking in with reality. Because this condition lasts a lifetime, that will always be with me. Now, mental illness, it takes a toll, even with support from loved ones. While in and out of the hospital, I've lost a high-paying job, destroyed two relationships, slipped on my meds, had a run-in with the police, and have even almost taken my own life. I've even bought ridiculous things, like a pallet of 10,000 lighters. <laughs> yeah, 10,000. If anybody needs one, I've got a few left. <laughs> I couldn't hold a job for a little over two years as I struggled with my condition, which damaged my self-esteem, my confidence, and my finances. When I found one, the right one, it was a critical step in my recovery. Now, through all my episodes, I've been fortunate. I've had a life and a home to go back to. This was thanks to a network of people who always had my back, who supported me during my struggles with bipolar disorder, who helped me in my recovery, who were there when I needed them. Not everyone is so lucky. Many people who go through similar ordeals will end up penniless, homeless, or in jail. They may lose their friends and family. Mental illness can truly destroy a life. But you can recover. Because living in recovery is possible. I've been stable these last two years. I manage the ups and downs of my condition well. Someone I've been stable, volunteering with has been stable for more than 10 years. His story gives me hope, and I hope mine can give that to others. So be compassionate, because it could just as easily be you. Let's spread compassion, awareness, kindness, and help others have the chance to rebuild their lives. Thank you. Great job, Great job. It's really amazing what you can do in five minutes. I mean, it's, it's endless how many things you can talk about if you're willing to be brave and share a truth that you know. Speaking of being brave, we are dependent on our brains. And if you know anything about cognitive bias, our brains are terrible, terrible things. This next talk is going to talk about what might be in the future for our brains. Laura Lance is going to talk about our brain's next firmware update. Please welcome her to the stage. Hi, my name is Laura Lance, and I'm a game designer who works in virtual reality. <laughs> so, technology changes the way that we think, but it's hard to appreciate these changes while they're happening. 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think right now we are in the, on the brink of some really incredible changes, some huge changes that are technology-driven. And in order to understand and the, the impacts that are happening, we need to look back really far to uh, another technology, a much older technology, that also had a tremendous impact. That technology is writing. We think of writing as an innate capability. We don't even really think of it as a technology, but in its early days, uh, people found writing to be very controversial. Such great minds as Socrates and Plato, uh, they, sorry, I'm, I'm really nervous for some reason. <laughs> I think it's because I'm trying, to, I'm trying to cram so many ideas in. So, yeah, writing takes ideas, writing takes information out of context. And when you read something in a book, you can't get more information out of that book. It just keeps saying what it says. You can't debate it, you can't persuade it, you can't ask it for more information, and you can't hold it responsible for its words the way that you do with a person. Information out of context is a powerful thing. It allows us to put information into new contexts of our own design. This led us to uh, more sophisticated abstract thinking and the development of formal logic. But in order to be able to use that, we had to come up with new best practices for recontextualizing information. Things like uh, vetting, vetting our information, vetting our sources, citing sources, even just dating records required us to be able to agree on a numbering system for years. So now we're very savvy about information out of context. But our new technologies, network technologies and mobile technologies, are taking relationships out of context. And that brings new challenges. We're accustomed to, or I guess our strategies are optimized for relating to people face to face, where we can have a lot of uh, just innate emotional connection. We have this visceral response. We have this awareness that is shared. Online, it's much easier to see people as objects, to thrill in the power of getting a reaction, to dehumanize and even demonize people who disagree with us. There's a lot of power also in relationships out of context. Projecting ourselves into new contexts of our own design lets us explore aspects of ourselves that we couldn't otherwise and relate to each other in new ways. But there's very real dangers to projecting ourselves out of our traditional contexts. Texting and driving puts us in danger of car crashes. When you're in virtual reality, there's lots of videos of people going to lean on a table that isn't actually there and falling over. <laughs> and there's dangers also that are emotional and social. This is an image of Narcissus and Echo. And it's very easy to take our context and imagine that it's true for all people or that it's the most important context and to ignore other people's real lived experiences. We have an unprecedented power to... Uh, choose who we relate to and how. And so we surround ourselves with people who look like us, people who think like us, people who agree with us. And we forget that we still are in relationships with people who we don't choose to associate with. Our actions impact them, their actions impact us. Relationships involve the whole person, and you can't separate that out. Emotion, uh, social, physical, these all need to be encompassed by our new best practices that we are in the, in the process of developing. Uh, we're, we're starting on this. 
We're becoming more uh, interested in mindfulness, understanding our relationship to ourselves and our own emotions. We're having conversations about privilege, about cultural appropriation, about uh, politics, identity politics. But technology keeps going. This is a, uh, a robotic seal that is doing emotional labor. Some people are worried that our new technologies are making us lazy in the way that we relate to each other and that our empathy and our compassion is being weakened. But I think that we are in the early days of a really incredible, profound change. And there's so much potential, but we have to work hard to make this happen, to recontextualize these relationships. So my name is Laura. I'm really passionate about these topics. Uh, if you have thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out. These are two books that uh, got me started on this train of thinking. I hope this talk is useful to you. Thank you. You had nothing to apologize for. You did really well. Good job, audience. I like you. Good job. Next up, Kevin Abaye is going to talk about, nope, really, Africa is not a country. Please welcome him to the stage. So I've often sat watching the news, and uh, inevitably on the news, some event that happened in Africa will be mentioned. But one of the things that they do is that they never, ever mention the name of the country. And I feel like yelling at the TV, no, Africa is not a country. So rather than to pick up drinking or go for therapy, I decided maybe I'll just come here and tell my story and take it out. So um, my name is Kevin, and I was born in Kenya. Uh, Kenya is just one of 54 different countries in Africa, each of them unique in its own way. And although I can't really speak for any of the other countries, I just wanted to give you a bit of what it was like growing up and living in Kenya. So, oh, Jambo Habariako. Um, this is Nairobi City. This is the capital city of Nairobi. This is where I was born and raised. It's a beautiful city, uh, great people, um, kind of like Seattle, culturally diverse. Although in Nairobi, the diversity tends to be more on the black side. Whereas in Seattle, um, so the other thing I love about Nairobi is that it has really good culture and uh, theater, art, dance, and music. In fact, growing up in Nairobi, I really loved go attending the music festivals. This is actually a music festival that is currently happening in, um, in Nairobi. It's called Karoga. I haven't been there because it's actually started when I had already left. But um, it's kind of like bumper shoot, except um, minus the smell of pot <laughs> or patchouli. <laughs> but it's a great place to, uh, lots of great food. You can hear lots of great local and other African bands. Um, and one of the things, too, that I really love about the festival is the fashions. Just checking out some of the uh, local fashion trends. So I know this might be a little hard to believe, just look at me like this, but Back in the day, I used to be a model, and uh, that was me back then. Uh, it was awesome because um, I used to be able to get dressed up, because I love to dress up. Um, yep, and um, we'd go do some great shows, and even sometimes on Sundays, I'd be uh, in, the, in, the, in the center uh, fashion spread in the Sunday papers. Um, what you might not really realize is that Nairobi actually does have a really thriving fashion industry. 
Um, this is one of my favorite uh, Nairobi designers. But um, here's, I guess, where the, the, the breakdown, Seattle breakdown, um, or Seattle comparison breaks down because, you know, Seattle being a tech city or West Coast city, like when you go to work and you're dressed in um, a t-shirt and a pair of shorts, we call that business casual. Um, but even in high, in high school, like in high school, we used to have to dress up, wear a tie and a blazer and a sweater. And I clearly remember my high school principal. Well, I don't remember his name and I don't remember his face, but I really clearly remember him naming and shaming me in front of the whole school because my socks were not pulled up to my knees. But I've moved on on that. Um, so the other thing I loved about Nairobi was uh, the food. There's lots of really great cuisine that you get in Nairobi because we're pretty diverse. But let's talk about some of the more simpler stuff that we're more used to. I mean, what's more American than a nice juicy burger or a hot piping cheesy pizza? Well, maybe the Italians might say the pizza is ours, but you know what? We are Americans and we can ignore the Italians and we'll take <laughs> pizza to be our own. Well, even Nairobi too is actually staking its claim on, on just the burger and the, and the pizza. And in fact, now we have regular pizza festivals and regular um, burger festivals where you can have all sorts of amazing food. But um, the other thing about Kenya too is that they've been known for growing coffee and exporting great coffee, but they also have, they also have an amazing coffee culture. In fact, some of the best espresso drinks I actually had in Nairobi, including Dorman's Coffee. Um, being from Seattle, and you know how Seattle helped kick off that sort of global coffee culture, um, I think we have to uh, give props to Howard and say thank you, and we appreciate you very much. <laughs> and uh, we'd also appreciate you, we'll appreciate you even more if you'd stop burning the beans. <laughs> so, but in all seriousness, um, Growing up in Nairobi, I mean, it was great, but, and we, we also had our own ups and downs, but if I was to do it over again, I would really, I would, be, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, I love my country, and I love America, and it's great. And hit me up uh, if you want to chat more, um, my email, my Twitter, and uh, thank you. Great job. Great job. It's not an Ignite Seattle without someone talking about coffee. It's just like it's on the checklist. If there was Ignite Seattle bingo would be on there. So uh, Rob, Robin talked in the first half about ice cream and why you should eat more of it because we're going to die. <laughs> Which I... <laughs> so good. We're going to hear a different story about dying. It's a little bit more personal. And one problem you have with storytelling is we can abstract away from the internal feelings you get when you deal with these moments yourself. And this talk is going to challenge us a little bit to think in our own context about, uh, about what's in our future. So please welcome Kelly Cannery to the stage. She's going to talk about the, I the Irish goodbye. That's her talk. Please welcome her to the stage. Hi, I'm Kelly, and I'm going to be your nurse tonight. I've been a nurse for 24 years, and I have been witness to many goodbyes between my patients and their families. I have considered this a privilege to be present at such intimate times in other people's lives. Tonight, <laughs> I want to share with you 
story about two significant and Irish goodbyes in my own life. And for you to know what an honor it was for me to be present when my mother died and the beauty in those moments. It's March 1969, and my dad, Barney, is extremely proud of himself because his 10th child was born with red hair and green eyes on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> he was in short order on the front porch with a whiskey in one hand and cigar in the other, standing under a sign that said, Kelly's here. And the party started. And my parents loved a party, and my mother loved her family and friends, so goodbyes were not quick to come. She could take 30 minutes to leave a party. She had to have that last-minute discussion with my sister Rosie or that long hug with my brother John or one of the multitudes of her grandchildren. Mary Kay could make you feel like you were the only person in the world when she looked you in the eye and touched your face. My dad, on the other hand, well, he'd gone out the back door and he was outside waiting for mom. He was the true Irish goodbye. My dad, uh, he had a bad heart, and uh, growing up he had multiple surgeries, and that left his heart weakened. And uh, in the last several months of his life, he spent mostly housebound and on oxygen, except for the last night of his life. My brother-in-law was in town, and he took my parents out for dinner. My dad refused to take the oxygen into the restaurant. He was on a salt-restricted diet, so he ordered a big steak with mashed potatoes and a vodka martini with an olive, and he loved it. <laughs> At the end of this night, my parents did their usual routine, which was to climb into bed with a glass of wine each and discuss their days. <laughs> In the morning, my mom got up and she went around the bed and she told me she knew right away that he was gone. So she wiped his face, and she kissed his cheek. She called us all home to say goodbye. I was 27 years old. She called me a couple months later. She was pissed. She said, it was just like your father to go out the back door and not say goodbye to me. <laughs> Ten years later, Mom met Hank. And they got married. She was 84 years young. <laughs> and five years into this marriage, Hank died. And for my mom, this had to be her last goodbye. Several months later, we took her to my sister Julie's on hospice care for failure to thrive. One morning, I watched her. She was sitting at the dining room table in her robe and slippers, with her black coffee and her toast and jam, and uh, her newspaper, reading it with a magnifying glass, and big band music, toe tapping under the table. And she would say, aren't we the luckiest? The day she died, I helped the hospice nurse wash her and change her clothes and put fresh sheets on the bed. And her friends and family came in throughout the day and the evening to say goodbye to her. There was a very strange, misty Irish rain outside that night. Inside, there were strange, misty Irish people singing songs and toasting my mom. And everyone left at about 10.30 that night. So I laid down next to her, and I held her hand and touched her face. And I noticed that her skin had gotten very warm, very hot, and her breathing had quickened. 
And then just as suddenly, her skin got very cold and her breathing slowed. We told her it was okay to go, that we love her. <laughs> and her breathing stopped. And I put my head on her chest to listen, but there was no sound. There was this incredible feeling that the universe had cracked open. And my beautiful mother went into that space for she had finally reached the front door at the end of her Irish goodbye. And this guy was waiting for her. Thank you. We do not mess around at Ignite Seattle. <laughs> Speaking of not messing around, how many of you like to dance? Okay, that's good. The next talk, Sandy Olson and Jang Wang are going to talk to you about So You Think You Can't Dance. Please welcome them to the stage. Okay, so how many of you consider yourself a dancer? Oh, good, good. How about choreographer? Okay. If you have not raised your hand, then by the end of this talk, I invite you to revisit your answers. My name is Zheng. I am a videographer and also artistic director of Dare to Dance. And I'm Sandy, and I'm a digital marketer, and I'm the administrative director of Dare to Dance. Dare to Dance is a professional dance show performed by non-professional dancers. In the six years that we've been doing this, We've had six successful shows with over 200 performers, and now some of our choreographers are professional dance instructors. So the year was 2010, and I was turning 35. Now, I wanted to do something big, so I thought, why don't I create a whole new dance show? Well, <laughs> the, thing is, the thing is, I had never been a dancer until earlier that year when I started doing dance with a flash mob group. You all know what that is? <laughs> so we go and dance in the street, but we're not professionals. But here's the thing about not professionals. Did you know that the word amateur comes from the word for love? So we love dancing, so why can't we create a dance show? So the validation came when I talked to my uh, flash mob friends, and they jumped on board with the idea. So I said, okay, let's do it. And I booked a professional venue, and we had about six weeks to recruit dancers, choreograph, and rehearse. Um, Many of the dancers had never performed on stage before. And we had 10 dance numbers, and three of them had professional choreography, and the others were created by a nurse, a postal worker, two computer engineers, a high school student with her mom, and myself. Now, did I have any proof that this will all work? No, but I had faith, because I believe that everyone can be creative. Everyone can express themselves through dance. And hey, if the show was terrible, we have a perfect excuse. It's just for my birthday. <laughs> but we didn't need the excuse because we sold out 150 seats and the audience loved it. And they, they were surprised to see a show that was professional, artistic, and they connected with us because we were people just like them. And we surprised ourselves because we came together and created art in a way that nobody expected us to. And then we loved it so much that it became an annual tradition. And as we grew, the philosophy of Dare to Dance started to take, to take shape. 
Before I had started with the Flash Mob group and with Dare to Dance, I'd done a couple of improv shows. And we used the improv ethos of yes and to forward the rest of our development. Do you all know the improv yes and? Just in case. It's the idea that everything that happens on stage is the truth. So if someone hands me a parrot, I can't pretend it's a shovel. I've got to go with a parrot and see where it takes me. We've used that ethos in Dare to Dance. When we, when we offer uh, open for submissions, we tell people that we would like performances that are dance involved, but we don't go into any more detail than that. So the other thing about, so the, the, uh, some of the pieces that we've had include juggling, capoeira. <laughs> we've had a performer playing piano and singing a song written personally, live on stage while dancing. And we've even had a, a fine art painter. This is an opportunity for the performers and the audience to interact with each other and inspire to do something that may be a little bit different and a little bit new. And on that note, now it's a dance break. I would like you all to stand up and I'm going to teach you some moves. So this was a show that was done, this was part of our last show, and it is a traditional gumboot dance. Gumboot is from South Africa, and it was originally in the gold mines of South Africa so that they could communicate with each other when they weren't supposed to be communicating with each other. So it's a bunch of stomps and a bunch of hitting of their waterproof boots known as gumboots. Now, because of space, you might just want to hit your knee. So, I will do it once, then I'll turn around, and so I'm facing the same direction as you. So, it goes one, two, and three, and four. I'm going to turn around so that I'm not looking at you, and so that you can see it as well. This time, do it with me. Ready? One, two, and three, and four. Got it? <laughs> Fabulous. Now you're all dancers. If you want to join the Dare to Dance movement, uh, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Check out our website. We would love to see you at our next show or our next audition if you dare to dance. Thank you. Good job, folks. I love you people, but that, that was terrible. <laughs> that was terrible. Uh, Speaking of terrible, so I do have, uh, or speaking of wonderful, actually, the opposite of terrible. So I still have this thing to give away, and I'm not sure who to give it to. So, uh, all right, so I have something in mind based on that terrible performance. So it's not, it's, I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. But if you want this, just stand up. Just stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Okay. What is wrong with the rest of you? How did we let you in here? All right. Standing up, it's good. All right. My pants are awesome. That's tempting. Although I had to say, the heckler over there was better than, than that. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I've got to narrow down the field. If it is not your birthday, sit down. All right. All right. I have successfully narrowed down the field. But I have to tell you that I cheated. If your name is not Eli, sit down. 
Eli. You want to, can you hand it past them? So, just before you complain, <laughs> just before you complain, oh, is that like Scott's friend or something? I met him in the lobby. They were having a birthday cake party. I'm like, what is, I'm one of the organizers. What are you doing at our thing? This is great. It's his birthday. He totally deserves it. If you choose, if you choose to have your birthday here and a bunch of your friends come and you buy tickets together, let us know. We might do something special like that for you too. Night 32, it's coming up. Submit your talks. Think about your ideas. Talk you like. What inspired you? Start thinking about it. Submission form is open. The next two talks are locally themed, which is great. We think we know our city. We live here a long time. There's a lot we don't know. Stuff we don't know that's going on and stuff we don't know about the past. First up is stuff that's going on. Philip Dang is going to talk to you. The title of his talk is Breaking Bad. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Master Ceremonies Fail. Let me back up. Local. Next two talks are going to be local. One's going to be at the past. One's going to be at the present. This talks about the past. Philip Dang is going to talk about breaking bread <laughs> and breaking boundaries. Please welcome Philip to the stage. So Town Hall is the perfect venue for my talk because we're in a beautiful historic building that's been transformed into a beloved community and civic space. And I'm here to say, let's do it again. In 2013, the city of Seattle finished $55 million worth of renovations at King Street Station, which sits in the heart of our city at one of the most transit-connected hubs on the entire West Coast. Every day, about 384,000 people move through this area, but almost none of them ever go inside King Street because it's been mostly empty this whole time, like it's been waiting for something. Before I tell you what that is, I want to take you to a neighborhood not too far from here called Yesler Terrace. This was Seattle's first low-income housing development, and it's still home to a large Somali refugee community. In 2012, I was working as a community organizer in Yesler, and I met a Somali woman who was cooking one of the most delicious stews I have ever smelled out in her backyard on a barbecue. And unfortunately, smelling it was as far as I ever got, because I asked her, I said, where can I try this? She just smiled and said, sorry, nowhere. There are no, there are no restaurants. We just make this at home for our families and for our community. So I don't know if y'all see where I'm starting to go, but we have this woman and thousands of other people like her with incredible culinary talent most of us don't have access to and communities that are struggling to start their own restaurants. We also have 10,000 square feet of empty space on a street level of a beautifully restored historic landmark in the heart of our city so hopefully you're starting to see Seattle's first international street food market at King Street Station. We're talking about a place where regardless of how you vote or worship or the language you speak or how much money you make, we all have to eat. And we're all there because the food is delicious and diverse and interesting. But more than that, for the 10 vendors that we envision in this space, they're part of a business incubator program designed by our organization specifically to help low-income immigrant and refugee cooks 
revive culinary careers they left behind in their home countries. We're talking about economic opportunity to people and families and communities that really need it. So this is a pretty special vision, and it's pretty tough to pull off. There's only one group that can do it. Yeah, it's us. It's this community. Because truly public institutions come from the people. We're in a great example of one right now. But Pike Place, the University of Washington, all of these institutions were built to meet our community's needs. And it, they're entrusted to us to maintain. So that's what Market Share and the Campaign for King Street is. We're a nonprofit with a mission to unite our community to build Seattle's next great civic icon, a once-in-a-generation chance. The city owns the station. It's a public space. The mayor has committed public funds for construction, and the Office of Economic Development is getting ready to request proposals. And a lot of private interests are lining up next to us. But market share's philosophy is rooted in the people. We care about the bottom line and have meticulous plans. But we care the most about 10 people out there who need a chance to realize that American dream. A lot has changed in the last two weeks. But the way forward has not. American life is still about building our society each day on a foundation of optimism and compassion and shared opportunity. And King Street Station has stood vacant for three years, waiting, I believe, for this moment to become our statement at a time when we are called to respond. So I'm saying let us build, together as a community, a living and enduring monument to our ideals, to our values, and to the basic notion that we are not just better together, but we love living together. So if you've been asking yourself recently, what's next? Tonight, connect with market share because we just have a few weeks left to claim King Street for our community to turn it into a symbol of who we really are. Thank you. So speaking of this word, uh, community, uh, I heard a rumor, not entirely sure that it's true, I heard a rumor that there's going to be an after party tonight. Uh, you know, rumors, you know, we Facebook news, fake things go by all the time, but I think this one might be true. Uh, the Quarter Lounge is a bar, it's just off the street. It's a wonderful dive bar, we've been there many times, but any of you who want to join us and the speakers and the organizers for a beer and celebrate this great night, you're welcome after our last talk to head over there, and uh, there'll be stuff and entertainment, and we can, maybe I'll take off the red pants, and you'll see what's underneath, who knows? We'll see how, the gentleman over there, we'll see how, we'll see what happens, who knows? Getting back on track with a serious topic. We spend a lot of our time not observing things. Our brains are meant to filter stuff out. And we live in cities that have so much history. Why is this street named after Denny? Why is this park named after this person? We just tune it all out. 
So I'm really excited about this next talk. She's going to teach us about how to pay more attention and give us some context to all the things we don't notice all the time. So the next talk, Amy Cash, she's going to talk about the streets where you live. Please welcome Amy to the stage. So I work as a tour guide, and sometimes I give tours to kids. And the great thing about that is they'll send you thank you cards. Yeah, I got one recently from a girl named Zoe. She wrote, I learned that there is a new Seattle. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> in our... <laughs> 160 some odd year history, there have been a lot of new Seattles. But all of those Seattles have contained in some form or another all of the problems we face today. In 1889, as the city rebuilt from its great fire, the Seattle PI wrote that the extent of building going on at the present time is inconceivable to those who are not within its very midst. <laughs> well, I think they could have written that yesterday. <laughs> and. <laughs> I think knowing our history can be a comfort in changing times. We can take some inspiration from the past and focus on our obligations to the future. Now, the early Seattleites thought a lot about the future. This is Belltown in 1910. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you squint, you can see shorties, I think. Um, <laughs> they brought water down from the Cedar River, they built a university, and then sent the president paddling around Puget Sound trying to find some students. Um, they, did, they also did some terrible things. This wasn't great for the environment, and there was racism and poverty and homelessness and addiction. But there were people who tried to solve those problems, like Emma Ray. She was born into slavery, she helped her alcoholic husband to quit drinking, and she then proceeded to help as many of the city's destitute and addicted as she could, including the grandson of Chief Seattle. She visited prisons and took newly released prisoners into her home, and she worked with another woman, Olive Rither, to care for abandoned and orphaned children. Now, neither Emma nor Olive discriminated as far as who they would help, but of course there was a lot of discrimination to go around. Just as Emma was retiring from her life in public service, a group of white businessmen were pushing successfully for laws to keep Asian Americans from owning land. 20 years later, some of those same men lobbied Congress for the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. The very first people in the country to be sent away left from Bainbridge Islands. Thousands followed with the full support of our mayor who said he feared they might otherwise burn this town down and bring on something that would dwarf Pearl Harbor. A senior at UW named Gordon Hirabayashi said no. He refused to comply with curfews or register for exclusion, and he appealed his criminal convictions to the Supreme Court. He lost. But 40 years later, his case was overturned, and he said then that if you think the Constitution is a good one, and if you think it protects you, you had better make sure it's actively operating, because otherwise, it's a scrap of paper. I learned about Hirabayashi from <laughs> a play. <laughs> uh, there's lots of ways to learn history. I like to play the game of who is this named for. Cal Anderson Park was named for our first openly gay state legislator. He fought to add... <laughs> 
he fought to add sexual orientation to the state's anti-discrimination law. And when the bill failed by one vote in 1994, he said he hoped it would energize people to go out and fight bigotry and hate so that their little victory would be short-lived. Uh, he died a year later. Uh, the bill passed in 2006, and earlier this week, hundreds of students met in that park to express their views on bigotry and hate. And <laughs> skip this slide. If you've wondered what the volunteers of Volunteer Park were volunteering for, it was the Spanish-American War. That's the one Joseph Pulitzer took credit for starting through his sensationalist news stories. Uh, but finally, everyone's favorite semi-functional phallic machine, Bertha. Uh, this was named, named for our first and only female mayor, Bertha Knight Landis. She ran, yeah, she ran a strong administration and did most of what she promised, and was widely endorsed for re-election. She lost to a man with no experience who refused to debate her, saying that he would not answer the questions encased in her pent-up bosom, as it is manifestly hard for any man to make debate with a hostile or infuriated woman. <laughs> That was him in the picture there. He promised jobs for everyone one year before the start of the Great Depression, and he <laughs> mainly distinguished himself by being our second mayor to be recalled from office and our second mayor named Frank. Uh, <laughs> so nothing is new. Everything comes back. Problems <laughs> persist. <laughs> but... I think what our history teaches us is that we have the power to decide what part we want to play and what we want our city and our community and our future to be. Because we are not living at the end of history. We're right in the middle of it. Uh, thank you. Great job. Good stuff. Good stuff. Having fun? Good? You're on the home stretch. You're on the home stretch. You're on the home stretch. A little bit longer to go before the quarter lounge. Beer in your hand. Now, there's so many things that go on at these events. We love the juxtaposition and forcing you to think about things from different perspectives. And something's happy, something's sad, something you don't know what to do with. And I'm really excited about our last talk tonight because it brings a lot of it, all, all of it together, both as the audience and how we challenge you and the challengers that speakers face at getting up on a stage like this. So it's our last speaker of the night. Maybe our best, we'll see. I think, I think it will be. Andrew McKee is going to talk about how great things never come from comfort zones. Please welcome Andrew to the stage. Emmett Till, young 14-year-old boy from Mississippi, brutally murdered by a white family after he had flirted with a white woman. Face disfigured dumped in the ocean. His mother did something that was very powerful. She called for an open casket so that everybody could be exposed to what happened to Emmett while he was in Mississippi. Look at your neighbor and say exposure. exposure. Say it again, exposure. exposure. So growing up in Mississippi, there's a lot of things that, that I wasn't exposed to. But one thing I was exposed to was things like poverty, things like struggle, things like hopelessness. Uh, my mother, who came from a family of, of, she lost her parents 
by the time she was 20 years old, both parents from cancer, lost two of her sisters, both dead, gone. Big family, in our past, we missed our, our little great family picture there. No degree, but was able to come back and graduate after understanding that exposure was a, a, a powerful thing. And my brother, who we just saw, and these slides are going really, really fast. <laughs> who we just saw uh, was the first one to graduate from Mississippi. And we and created this bridge of exposure and access, this bridge of, of understanding that greatness is not uh, building a wall, but it's actually building a bridge. It's building a bridge to access. <laughs> Joe DeForest, who was a, a good friend of mine, I played football, and this guy recruited me. He did not look like me. He did not look like me, but he saw some potential. He saw something great inside of me that I didn't see in myself. He did not look like me, but he was a white man, and I was a young black boy. Um, but he saw something that, what, that changed something in me, and it showed me perspective, and it gave me exposure. Um, I broke my neck at Oklahoma State, one of the most difficult things I've ever been through. After going and getting recruited, out of Mississippi, being exposed to something that was brand new to me, coming from difficult situations, exposed to great friends, new environments, saw education for the first time, what it really looked like outside of Mississippi, equal opportunities, equal access, was given opportunity that I didn't know about, that I wasn't sure of, that I, I was able to really walk into. I want to encourage everyone in the room that we must be this change. We must be this answer to creating this pipeline of access, this bridge to opportunity for those who may not look like us. It's not about the wall. It's about the bridge. Access, exposure, education, opportunity. These are a great family of mine. I call them my, my Stillwater family, my white family who took me in when I didn't have anyone in Oklahoma. That's something that we all can do. We look, at some, we look at this world and we're all in this, this difficult place and we're all fearful. We're all scared about what's going to happen if the change is inside of us. That's why we're here at Ignite Seattle. That's why we're here. Is if we ignite Seattle, we can ignite the world. We can change the world. We can change it. We can change it. When I was 14, this is why the story of Emmett Till means so much to me. When I was 14... I had a, a, a large group of friends, some white, some black. I ended up dating a young lady who didn't look like me. I got called by a man while I was at work and said, I'm coming for you. I'm, I have my gun, and I'm going to shoot you down dead. That's why the story of Emmett Till means so much to me. That's why understanding what his mother did, the exposure that she chose to cheat, she knew that she had to do something that was so uncomfortable that would change the perspective of every, everyone that came in contact with his face. That's my mother there, who came from the family of nothing. Two parents gone, two sisters gone, no education. We started getting education. She came back to graduate. She came back to create this pipeline for us to see something that's great. It was not difficult for her. It was not difficult for, for many of us. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. That's my message to this room, is we all can be great. 
because we all can serve. Service brings sacrifice. We have to shake ourselves, get uncomfortable, embrace the discomfort. We talk about growth mindset all the time. America is not about making America great again. It's about the fact that we may not be as great as we thought we were yet. Yet, not about color, it's about us being willing to step out of our comfort zone, sacrifice, serve everybody, all kids, all students, all people. Thank you. Thank you, folks. So we want to keep this going forever. We think this is an important forum. So please tell other people about it, tweet about it, write on Facebook about it, and submissions are open. So we want to see you up here next time. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ignite Seattle 31 took place on November 17th at Town Hall Seattle. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.